Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, as we come to a word that you caused Moses to speak many years ago, uh, we pray that you would give us understanding of what it says, uh, more that you would help us to see how this word relates to us and can guide and instruct us as we follow Jesus. Help me to speak your word now truthfully and clearly and help us all to receive it with understanding and faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, how should we live? Now that's not a uniquely Christian question, is it? Uh, people have always wanted to know the right way to live, the way that promotes the flourishing of individuals and societies that leads to just relationships and a safe community. Uh, part of the Christian answer to the question, how should we live, a large part of that answer that has actually shaped Christian moral intuition has been what are called the Ten Commandments, uh, what you heard in Deuteronomy 5. The Ten Commandments have dominated Christian moral instruction for centuries. So you will find, for example, a section on the Ten Commandments in all the major catechisms of the Reformation, and that's the section that deals with how we live life. But should they have this place? Can we, should we, still look to the Ten Commandments for foundational instruction given to Israel? Why and how should they be adopted by Christians? Why should they be taught, as I urge, uh, taught by you when you have children, to your children? And we ask those questions, remembering that they're actually not theoretical questions. Uh, we live in a society where as part of the debate on religious freedom. Christians who take the Bible seriously can be accused of wanting, say, to stone blasphemers because it's written in the Old Testament. Uh, I heard that on Radio National this morning. Uh, so we actually have to think through our relationship to and how we appropriate the moral instruction of the Old Testament. Now we're going to spend two weeks looking at Deuteronomy 5. In this first week we're going to look at the context in which Moses repeats on the plains of Moab these Ten Commandments given first 40 years ago at Mount Horeb. And we're going to answer the question just asked. Given to Israel, why and how should they be adopted by Christians? It's by looking at these commandments in their context, both in Deuteronomy and in Israel's story, that we'll actually be reminded of the most obvious and most important thing about these Ten Commandments, and that is Israel's failure to keep them. Because this is our starting point as Christians for thinking about how they can help us to live as Jesus' followers. Then in the following week, we'll look at the content of their teaching to see how good it is, how these words direct our love of God and love of neighbour. Now, just giving one week to what I've said is actually foundational uh, does seem a bit brief, doesn't it? But actually, we'll see that in the rest of Moses' second speech, that is the speech that starts at chapter 5, verse 1, and goes all the way through to the end of chapter 26, what we'll see 
in the rest of Moses' second speech is the application to Israel's new life in the land of these ten words. We'll continually, in a sense, be revisiting what these ten commandments call for. Uh, we'll actually see in those chapters that follow what a life committed to these norms, these standards, looks like in the particular context of Israel's life in the land. That, in turn, will give us a model for applying those same norms to our particular lives in the here and now. So the rest of Deuteronomy will show us how to move from these general principles to obedience to God in every detail of our lives. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt beyond the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor. Having concluded his first speech, the speech that goes from one to chapters 1 to 4, Moses continues to give the people law. It's translated law here, but as we saw in chapter 1, it's Torah instruction in its broadest sense. Instruction on the plains of Moab. So the people are listening to this speech are conscious that they're on the border of the promised land, about to enter it. In fact, with the defeat of Sion and Og, some of the tribes have already come into possession of their portion of the land. So how are they to live in this new land? How are they to conduct themselves so that they'll continue in the land as God's people? Moses, as a good pastor, is seeking now to equip them to live as the Lord's people in Canaan, the land the Lord will give them. And so, 5.1, he gathers all, the, all Israel. Uh, these words are addressed, as we'll see, not just to those alive then, but consciously to all Israel, all Israel who are and who will be to every future generation of Israel. And like a good preacher, Moses sets out the goal of his speech right at the beginning. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. So every Israelite listening to Moses knows, in a sense, the application, the required response. Hear the statutes and the rules. Now, statutes and rules is a subset of the phrase you heard in at the beginning, 445, testimonies, statutes and rules. Some combination of those terms and similar ones is frequent in Deuteronomy. They speak of commands where, which, uh, where obedience is expected, standards that govern life and against which behaviour can be measured, customs that are to regulate practice. So Moses says here, pay attention so that you understand. Learn, internalise these statutes and rules. And they're to hear and learn so that they do, so that they're careful to do, careful to live their lives in conformity with this instruction. That's the take-home message for the Israelites, in fact, for us, as we go through Deuteronomy. Hear, learn, do. But that is going to be very demanding for them. The statutes and rules Moses teaches in the following chapters will embrace the whole of an Israelite's life, where they worship, their calendar, what they can wear, what they can sow in their fields, what they can eat, 
how they should relate to their non-Israelite neighbours, the provision they should make for their less well-off neighbours, how they'll settle disputes, who they can marry, what to do when their marriages go wrong. And it'd be easy for some listening to what Moses teaches to say, why? Why should I live that way? Why should I give up some of my crop to support the poor? Why, perhaps even more challenging, should I share in the execution of a neighbour who goes and worships other gods? Who says so? Why, says the Israelite, why should I listen, learn and do? So Moses starts this second speech that goes to the end of chapter 26 by giving the Israelites three reasons to motivate their listening and their obedience, to help them commit to the life that he's outlining. Here is the first reason. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. He says to the Israelites, you're the people of the Lord God, you're in covenant relationship with him. Now what is it to be in a covenant relationship? What's a covenant? Because that's not a word we use often in English. Well, a covenant is the formalisation and regulation of a relationship, a relationship that isn't a natural relationship. Uh, a relationship between a parent and a child is a natural relationship and you don't need a covenant for it. But you do need a covenant for marriage. You see, it's not a natural relationship. There's nothing obligatory in this particular man marrying this particular woman and so the relationship is then formalised by a public commitment. And what is involved in the relationship, in that commitment, is made clear in the promises they make to each other. Now in Moses' days, covenant could exist between two nations or between a king and a subject people. God has entered into a covenant with Israel. You see, while the Lord is creator of all and so all are in relationship with the Lord and owe him honour and thanks by the very act of creation, not all have been redeemed by the Lord. The Lord has particularly redeemed Israel out of all the nations of the earth, as Moses has reminded us at the end of chapter 4. Now that is not a natural relationship, but one arising by the deliberate choice of God. And God's relationship with Israel is not brought about by the covenant. The Israelites didn't earn relationship with God by their obedience. No, this relationship was brought about by God's gracious redeeming them from slavery in Egypt, by God's initiative in salvation, in faithfulness to his promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God's gracious action preceded preceded any doing on their part. Then having rescued them from Egypt and brought them to Mount Horeb, at Mount Horeb, that relationship brought about by God's gracious saving action is formalised. That is, the Lord and Israel, both parties consciously committed themselves to the relationship and they consciously committed themselves to the requirements of the relationship. The Lord outlined his commitment in Exodus 19, that he would be the God of Israel, who would be his special people, a treasured possession, people who's committed to hearing and saving, set apart as his own, holy to him. And on Israel's part, 
Well, they had committed to obeying the Lord. Moses read the book of the covenant in their hearing and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. In this covenant, the Lord is king in Israel and Israel's committed to live under his rule. Israel had entered into a covenant with the Lord at Horeb and Moses is very direct and clear that the Lord made this covenant with his present hearers. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb, not with our fathers, and the sense there is not only with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face. Now Moses had said, as we heard in chapter 4, that at Sinai at Horeb they saw no form. So face to face is a way of speaking that brings home to his audience that they have been directly and personally addressed by the Lord. But how can he say that? How can he say the Lord made a covenant with us, all of us here alive today, when more than half his hearers, everyone under the age of 40, was not even born? when Israel entered into the covenant with the Lord at Mount Horeb. Well, Moses can say this because what was spoken to Israel gathered at Sinai was spoken to the nation Israel, to every Israelite ever. You see, the Lord knew he was addressing to speaking to the nation, the continuing nation generation after generation. They, in a sense, were all there being addressed by the Lord. In fact, it's only as every succeeding generation know themselves as addressed by the Lord there and respond with trusting obedience that they are Israel included in God's people. You see, Deuteronomy tells us that it's never just by physical descent that an Israelite was an Israelite. It was always through hearing the word and committing themselves in obedience to the Lord who spoke it. And you know, it's actually the same for us, in a sense, in the New Covenant. It's only as you know yourself being addressed by Jesus at the Last Supper that the words he spoke there to the first disciples are actually spoken to you and you receive them with faith, believing what Jesus says about his saving work on the cross, that you are included in the New Covenant. And we'll think about that a bit later when we come to share in the Supper. Well, having said that the Lord made a covenant with them, Moses then, as we heard, goes on to recite the Ten Commandments given at Sinai, the content of the covenant, what they had in summary committed themselves to. In fact, in chapter 4, Moses had said that actually those ten words are the covenant. He declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments, the ten words. Moses is making the point that the covenant had always required a commitment to live by God's standards. So Moses is saying to the Israelites, you are already committed to living the Lord's way. That's the right response to the grace he's shown in bringing you out from slavery. It's the substance of your relationship with him. That's what makes you the Lord's people and it's as the Lord's people that you'll live in the land 
So when he says to them, when I am asking you to hear, learn and do, I'm not asking anything new of you. I'm actually just calling you to live in this new situation in the land as you've already committed yourself to live, to live as the Lord's people. Now, why are the Ten Commandments a suitable summary of their commitment? We'll introduce them briefly and speak more about them next week. But let's think about the place, the role of these commandments because they are distinct and unique from the beginning. They actually have a special name. I've been calling them the Ten Commandments, but actually these ten are distinguished from the commands and statutes by not being called commandments. They're called the Ten Words or just the Words. So they've got a special name. And they have a special delivery, don't they? They have been spoken directly to the Israelites by the Lord. And then they have a special place amongst them. Inscribed by the finger of God as a fixed and permanent record, they are placed in the Ark of the Covenant, at the very centre of their life, the very centre of their relationship with their God. More the Israelites are actually addressed in these ten words individually. It's a singular you, with each Israelite sharing in the responsibility to live as the covenant people of the Lord. And unlike the statutes and commandments that follow, there are no punishments attached to these ten words. In fact, some are impossible to punish. How do you know what's going on in somebody's heart? Thou shalt not covet. And verse 22 tells us that they are distinguished from all that follows. These words the Lord spoke to all of your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, and then, see, he added no more. They are distinguished from all else. And so they're better thought of as the foundational principles of the relationship between the Lord and his people Israel. And they're not arbitrary but reflect the reality of the relationship between the Lord and his people. They cover how to honour the Lord as he has revealed himself in saving them and how the Lord would have himself be honoured in the people's treatment of each other, protecting their fellow Israelites' participation in the blessings of the covenant by protecting the Israelites' life and marriage and property and reputation. And while we may not see it at first, these are actually the charter of a free people, a people freed from slavery by the Lord. And so, as one author said, they are to be considered as absolute, universal and permanent. The statutes and rules that Moses will give in the rest of this speech, well, they'll actually apply these already given universal principles to Israel's new situation in the land. And we'll see that as we go through chapters 6 to 26, but just two examples to whet your appetite. So the ninth commandment forbids bearing false witness. In Deuteronomy 19, you'll find the punishment for a false and malicious witness. The sixth commandment prohibits the taking of innocent life. In Deuteronomy 22, you'll see that Moses regulates the building of houses to protect the lives of others by instructing that a parapet is built around the roof, a flat roof, to prevent falls. 
So these ten principles are like the skeleton of the response that God requires from his people. Muscle and flesh is put on the skeleton by the statutes and rules that Moses will give so that the nation Israel in the land of Canaan has a functioning law code. You could think of them as Israel's constitution that will then find expression in the legislation Moses give. So why should Israel listen, learn and do? Well, Moses says to the Israelites, you've already committed yourself to listening and doing in the covenant with the Lord, the covenant which is the source of your identity as the Lord's people and your title deed to possession of the Lord's land. And what I'm about to teach you is the application of those already committed to principles in your new circumstances. That's the first reason. The second reason they should listen, learn and do is because these statutes and rules which Moses will teach are the statutes and rules given to them by the Lord. For Moses is the one chosen to be the mediator, the go-between between them and the Lord. Now we think of a mediator these days usually as somebody who mediates a settlement between two disagreeing parties who helps two but often equal parties come to an agreement. That's not how to think of a mediator here. Moses is the one who communicates between two separated parties, parties that are unequal. He will bring the Lord's message to the people and intercede with the Lord for the people. And Moses reminds them that he has this role at their request. <laughs> their experience at Horeb was awesome and overwhelming. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. And while wondering how they'd survived, verse 26, who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and is still live? Well, wondering while they have survived, they cheerfully nominate Moses to run the risk of death on their behalf. You, Moses, go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say. And at the same time, they committed themselves to doing what the Lord speaks to them through Moses. Speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. And as you heard, the Lord agreed with their nomination. Verse 28, they're right in all that they've spoken. With the consequence, verse 31 that all that Moses will say in the speech to come, in the remaining chapters of this speech, the commandments, the statutes and rules, is the Lord's instruction that they should do. Hear, learn and do. Because, says Moses to the Israelites, you're in covenant relationship with the Lord as your king. Because what you hear is the word of the Lord your king spoken by the mediator you have committed to obeying. And the third reason that they should hear, learn and do is that, well, actually hearing, learning, doing is the means God has given them for enjoying their possession, of enjoying life in the land, of coming to enjoy the fulfilment of their hope. You see how that promise of blessing is repeated up to the conclusion of this introduction in 6 verse 3 where Moses repeats what he had said in chapter 5 verse 1. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them. 
See how the promise of blessing, blessing is repeated? Say in verse 33, that you may live, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Or in chapter 6, uh, he says, keep these rules, teach them to your kids, that you may fear the Lord, that your days may be long. Oh, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you. See, being careful to do what Moses teaches is the path to life and long possession in the land. Now, this is quite a powerful introduction, isn't it, to the speech that Moses is going to continue to give. It's motivating, isn't it, to hear, learn and do because you're in covenant with the Lord, because you have a mediator who brings you the Lord's word because this is the way of possessing your hope. It's a great start. But actually there is a problem, a big problem highlighted by the very terms of the encouragement Moses gives them here. Covenant, they broke the covenant. Mediator, they refused to listen, not just to Moses, but to the other prophets the Lord had sent. Possessing their hope, they lost the land. See, this is the reality. Israel failed to listen, learn, and do. They failed to keep the covenant. In fact, that failure is anticipated by the Lord even here. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always. Israel's failure is prophesied at the end of Deuteronomy by Moses at God's command. Deuteronomy 32, where God says that Moses is that Moses is to teach this song to the people as a witness against them. And the song is a record of their rebellion. So verse 16, they stirred him, the Lord, to jealousy with strange gods. You'll have no other God before me. With abominations they provoked him to anger. That failure to listen, learn and do to this good law is actually characteristic of Israel's story over the centuries, repeated again and again throughout their history. It starts early in Judges, right after the death of Joshua. It continues. It, it continued through the splitting of the people into the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel and Judah. This is how Hosea speaks of Israel. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offering to idols. This is how the book of Kings sums up the disobedience of the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, the disobedience that went on until they were deported by the Assyrians from the land. Verse 14, they would not listen. They despised his statutes and his covenant. They abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God until the Lord removed them out of his sight. Yet even though the northern kingdom, those ten tribes, suffered deportation for their failure to listen, learn and do, Judah, the southern kingdom, continued not listening, continued not learning, continued not doing. And so we see in the prophets, God pronounced judgment on them, a judgment that brings us back to Moses' words in Deuteronomy. He says, they broke my covenant, the covenant he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt. 
Rather than having a heart to do the Lord's will, they had, in the words of Ezekiel, a heart of stone, entirely unresponsive to the Lord, stubbornly not listening or learning. And they lost the land, deported to Babylon, lost the land. And when Judah returned from exile, yes, they committed themselves to the law with Ezra, but they actually corrupted it to an external conformity, a a half-hearted show, as we can see in Malachi, and then in their gospel, and then in the gospels, where their failure to listen, learn, and do climaxes in rebellion against their king by killing the king's son, Jesus. Now, why? Why did Israel not listen, not learn, and not do? Was there any defect in what the Lord had asked of them? No, his law, as we'll see, is clear, accessible, and good. Well, did they fail because they, the Jews, were especially bad? No. They failed because they are like us. That's what Paul says in Romans 3, that all of us are under sin, under the power of sin, that none is righteous. It's because they, like us, have hearts that turn away from loving God to pleasing ourselves. That's why they fail. In fact, that's part of what the Jewish experience of the law is meant to show us, the human heart that because of our hearts that, like Adam, are determined to disobey God's word, no one will be able to justify themselves, that is, make themselves right with God by doing the law, no matter how good that law is. And that is what we have to remember as we come to think about these wonderful and thoroughly good ten words and Moses' application of them in the chapters that follow. Israel failed to keep them and came under the law's judgment and left to ourselves, of ourselves, we will fail to keep them. And these laws condemn us. And so if we think that, you know, we can just read the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 5, and adopt these Ten Commandments and live them out as law and make them the basis for our relating to our Creator God, our perhaps assurance in our obedience to Him, we are doomed. We cannot just adopt them as law in themselves. In themselves and of ourselves, they condemn us. But the structure of Moses' encouragement to the people, this talk of covenant, mediator, hope, also points beyond itself, like all of Scripture, to Jesus and what he has done. Moses himself prophesied of a time when God himself would make his peoples keeping the covenant keeping the covenant possible, when they would be, in a sense, be given new hearts, circumcised hearts, hearts that were set apart to God so that they would love him and do his will. And what was prophesied, Jesus has brought to pass. Believers are now called to listen and do because of and in a new and better covenant. We're instructed, brought the word of God, by a new and better mediator, one who not only instructs, brings God's word, but saves, reconciles estranged parties. And because of his mediation, we have a better hope. 
are hopes so sure that the author of Hebrews can say, we have come, in a sense, to our inheritance. We have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So sure is it. In fact, so sure that the Apostle Paul, who knows of our struggle with sin, can say nothing will separate us from the love of God. We will never be removed from his presence ever. And we have this new covenant, this greater mediator, this sure hope of a new heaven and earth because Jesus has fulfilled the law. That's right. Jesus is the real and true Israelite whose life conforms perfectly to these ten words. He was tested as Israel was in the wilderness, but he was without sin. Oh, and Jesus is the faithful prophet whose teaching brings out to the fullest what God looks for and expects in his people's relationship with himself and others. And Jesus, in his death, is the one in whom the law's righteous judgment on lawbreakers is executed to the full. And in bearing our sins, it is Jesus who secures our hope forever. Through his death for sin, he does, as he says at the Last Supper, bring into being the new covenant, and he can, for he is God amongst his people. Now, there's so much to unpack there. I know there's a lot of theology, but it's only as we recognise Israel's failure to keep the law and Christ's fulfilment of the law in his life, teaching and death that we can understand how these ten words and the statutes and rules that Moses will give to help apply them to the life of Israel, that we can understand how these ten words can guide us in how we should live. It's only as we understand Israel's failure and Christ's fulfilment of the law that we can be encouraged by covenant, mediator and hope to listen, learn and do. And we should listen, learn and do to the ten words and all that follows because in the new covenant that Christ brings into being, the new covenant in which we are now included through believing his word, not only are we forgiven for all our failure to live as God's commands, God commands, it also says that God's law is written on our hearts. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. That is, we really will have internalised it at the centre of our will. You see, by God's spirit, our hearts are changed. We're given a new heart that wants to do God's will, that delights in his righteous law, that can listen and learn and do. But of course, we don't listen, learn and do ever as a means of becoming righteous. We only do it in gratitude for being made righteous through faith in Christ because of his death. And we never do it as the means of securing our hope, for that is done in the death of Jesus. No, we listen, learn and do as an expression of a life full of a sure hope. And we never come to the law, independent of the law being fulfilled in Christ. We come only as it has been fulfilled and now comes to us in Christ's teaching for that is what it is to be a disciple, one who's now committed not to doing the law Moses brings for the nation Israel in Canaan, 
but to doing all that Christ has taught, all that he has commanded us. And the Lord Jesus, as you have heard, teaches us that the whole law depends on loving God and loving neighbour. There can be no obedience unless what we do is characterised by both and the place of the ten words, the place of the law, <coughs> is in teaching us how to do both, how to love God and love neighbour. As Jesus himself was guided by this law in loving God and loving neighbour. In fact, Jesus himself gives us instruction, a model in a sense of how the law teaches us to love in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Sixth commandment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks with a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, Jesus fulfills the law. He teaches its true intent, how it guides us in loving God and loving neighbour. And Jesus' apostle Paul reminds us of that when he says in Romans, in Romans 13 that love is the fulfilling of the law. For to love our neighbour actually summarises, verse 9, what the ten words requires of us in our treatment of our neighbour. Oh, and he reminds us that when he says in Galatians that the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Now we'll start to unpack that next week, how these ten words teach us how to love God and love our neighbour. But coming back to the beginning, can we... Should we still look to these ten words and the law that follows that for foundational moral instruction? Yes, for they are the word of our God, spoken directly by him, expressing what he loves and hates, and our hearts have been changed by Jesus to want to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Given to Israel, why should they be adopted by Christians? And how should they be adopted? Well, they should be adopted only as Christians. That is, those who know that they are sinners, who of themselves cannot please God no matter how good the laws, but who also know that Jesus has fulfilled the law for them, fulfilled the law for them in his life, his teaching and his death, and who have put their faith in Jesus to be righteous before God. So we come to them as Christians, people who have an inheritance in the new heaven and earth, not in a nation state. And so, for example, we have no interest in imposing penalties on others, no interest whatsoever in stoning anybody for blasphemy, for example. Oh, and we come to them taught by Jesus, taught by Jesus how to learn from these words how to live lives characterised by love of God and love of neighbour. But we have to engage with them and they should be taught to us, taught by us to our children if and when we have them because you can actually only understand the power of the summary when you know what it summarises. To tell children, to tell any disciple of Jesus to love without telling them what it is to love as God has commanded is to launch their moral ship rudderless into the sea of life 
where love is such a confused and abused word. So, here we come, we're coming to Moses' second speech, full of instruction, and from 12 on, full of laws. We have to listen, learn and do to the ten and all that follows, but only as followers of Jesus, the one who has fulfilled the law for us, followers of Jesus who have been taught by Jesus to keep this law in love. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you do guide us in life by your word. You teach us how to live that life of love of you and love of neighbour, which is the truly human life. We pray in your mercy that as we come to look at the ten words and Deuteronomy, all that Deuteronomy teaches in the weeks ahead, that you would guide and instruct us so that we would live the life pleasing to you. But gracious Father, we thank you that we come to these words as forgiven people in Christ who now seek to do your will out of gratitude, not to earn your favour. We thank you that we come to these words as ones who have been taught by Jesus how to live that life of love. We thank you that we come to these words as people who can rejoice in a secure hope and know that this is your good instruction for us to flourish as your people and to be that light to the world you will your people to be. We give you thanks and praise and pray in your mercy that as we look at these words, our minds will be transformed to do your will, good, acceptable and perfect. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.